0: You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, Love Thy Neighbor. Um, this
1: next story is um, it's about neighbors, about Stone Age neighbors, Uh, Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble. And I'll be telling the story as Barney Rubble. It's a bit of a stretch, but you'll have to bear with me. Fred Flintstone is a caveman, the kind of guy who thinks forming his fist into a gavel and pounding you on the head is a witty rejoinder worthy of the Algonquin rock table. That eating a Bronto burger off his lap in a bowling alley toilet stall is high tea at Bucking Rock Palace. (laughs) As I've said, a caveman. Now what does it say about me that I call this man my best bosom buddy? That I put up with the wild mood swings and childish tantrums? Well, I will tell you in his defense, as well as my own, that Fred can also be the warmest guy in the world. When Fred Flintstone puts his arm around your neck and yells, Yabba-dabba-doo, you really feel like everything is going to be all right. I mean, have you ever seen the way the guy eats Brontosaurus ribs, the sauce all over his face? Seeing Fred Flintstone eat a plate of ribs is one of the purest, most unselfconscious things you will ever see. It's almost embarrassing, like you're seeing right into someone's childhood, into their very soul. Damn him for that. Fred and I have been best friends since we're kids. Fred was with me the first time I smoked a cigarette and the first time I ever got drunk. Back when we were young, going out on the town with Fred was like being caught in a tornado of testosterone. Walking into the rocketeria, Fred would take charge, doing the Flintstone flop, the frantic, and the bedrock twitch, all the while swooned over by cha-cha-heeled bunny hoppers and go-go girls. I was always standing off to the side but Fred would grab me by the arm and introduce me to his new friends. In fact, Fred was even with me the night I first met my future wife. Betty was working as a cigarette girl at the Roxy, and all night I kept buying pack after pack of windstones from her, just to be near her, just to be able to look at her from up close. When I'd get like that, all cowed and love-struck, Fred would go into what he called Mr. Reality mode. Telling me to stop acting like a trench coated prevert. <laughs> Eventually, Fred went over and got Betty's phone number for me. Here you go, pal, he said. On the way home, I remember staring at that number and laughing like a hyena. I asked Fred what he thought of her, and he said he didn't think Betty was the kind you settle down with, but she'd definitely be a candidate for the old Flintstone hump and dump. Fred and I are like a couple of 14 year old girls. We have our fights and then we make up. It's always the same thing. But lately I just haven't had the stomach for it. Betty says that the cold spell's been affecting my mood, making me more sensitive than is my nature. There's no denying the cold's been making me sore. The ground's gotten so cold lately that we can't even walk around barefoot. Betty's begun wrapping our feet in cabbage leaves. When Fred sees this, he says that wearing anything on your feet is unmanly. He calls my cabbage leaves ballet slippers and says I only wear them to make myself look taller. I think the cold's been affecting the appliances, too. The other day I dropped some eggshells into the Pelican trash can and it gagged and threw up on the floor. It's so cold I've started taking hot baths two, sometimes three times a day. I bathe just to feel warm for a while. I lie back in the tub and close my eyes, and as the water pours out of Bessie's trunk, I try to think of relaxing things. (laughs) Betty and I have decided to take a break and treat ourselves to a trip to Rocapulco. (laughs) I think how nice it'll be to get away from this cold weather and from Fred. It's two days before our trip, Saturday afternoon, and we're at Fred and Wilma's. We're sitting in the kitchen and the kids are in the playroom. Fred is pounding back straight cactus juice and so am I. The girls are drinking salty stegosauruses. Fred is telling one of his stories. He's getting loud, the way he gets just before he starts pounding the table for emphasis. After three drinks, it's the table, and after four, it's my head. So when he starts in for the hundredth time about how he and he alone invented the Flintstone flop and how the corporate bastards cheated him out of the copyright on the dance, I couldn't just sit there and say nothing. You think you're a regular Bob Fossil. I say this with a laugh, like I always do when I'm wounded. Just remember who dropped the bowling ball of inspiration on your foot in the first place. This really gets him going, calling me a mental case and a knucklehead. I try to catch Betty's eye to get us leaving, but it's like Fred consents when I'm trying to give him the slip, and it only brings out the worst in him. How much taller is Betty than you, he asks, completely out of nowhere. Wilma snaps him in the shoulder with a dish towel. Watch it, Fred, she says. Just stand back to back, he says. I keep my mouth shut. Only this time, it's different. This time, I hear this voice inside my head, quiet but firm. Fred Flintstone and I are done. I know I felt it before, but this time, I feel it for real. I was sick of the witless repartee and the macho one-upmanship. This was it. No big scenes. It was all going to be very civilized and adult-like. When Betty and I headed off to Roccapulco, it was going to be a clean break from Fred for good. Well... That was my thinking until this happened.
2: You have reached the Flintstones. Well, uh, Unfortunately, we can't take your call right now. Where
3: the hell is my stick? Come on, I've been working all day. So, leave, my dinner? Leave a right. message after, after the beep. What are you fussing with the f***?
2: Hey, Fred. It's Barney. Listen, uh... I don't know how to even tell you this, but, uh... I was pulling out of the driveway and, um, I accidentally ran over Dino. (laughs) He's, uh, he's dead, Fred. I'm really, really, really sorry. He was sleeping on our driveway behind the car. The thing is, Betty and I have to get to the airport because we're supposed to make our flight to Roccapulco. I don't know what to do. I almost canceled the trip, but, um, Everything's booked, and, and Betty's been really, really looking forward to it for so long. Honestly, I, I, don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what to do. I'll try calling you as soon as the plane lands, okay?
1: You need to know that despite my feelings towards Fred at the time, this was a complete accident. An accident that to this day I regret... Though I suppose in the interest of full disclosure, I should also say that when I imagined Fred finding that dinosaur and then feeling just like he'd been kneed in the groin, feeling basically the way he always makes me feel, it was to my mind like some weird justice. So I put Dino in Fred's hammock and covered him with a blanket so Pebbles wouldn't see him, and then what else could I do? I headed off for the soothing, dreamy heat of Rocapulco, and I hoped Fred would understand.
2: This is Barney. This is Betty. We're, We're the Rebels. But we can't find our cell phone. I thought you had it. I thought you had it. Oh, no. Better Unless just leave us a message. A
3: message. <laughs> uh, hi, Barney. It's Fred. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm shocked and I'm saddened. I... I don't even know how this could have happened. I think maybe because of how short you are, you couldn't see Dino over the steering wheel? I don't know. And I, and I, you know. I would have thought that I'd have heard from you by now, because I, I think your plane landed a few hours ago. Look, um, you know, j- just call me when you can.
1: When I landed, I had 16 increasingly drunken messages from Fred. Ending with this one.
3: There are no accidents. I mean, think about that when you try to explain how a pipsqueak could even get his foreign compact car to run all the way over a nearly full-grown dinosaur, let alone kill it. I mean, how many times did you have to back up over Dino? So I will just, I will just leave you with this one thought. Why don't you ask Betty why it took her so long for her and me to get those Bronco Burger buns? at the grocery store two Sundays ago. Come on, just ask her. Have
1: fun. It was after that beauty that I decided to leave Fred a message of my own, suggesting he asked Wilma about the time Stoney Curtis was filming Slave Boy in Bedrock and Wilma had gone to his trailer for an hour-long autograph... Needless to say, Fred and I said some things that day that further damaged our already tarnished friendship. And needless to say, me and Betty's romantic Rocapulco getaway was taken up with recriminations, crying jags, and poolside screaming matches that lasted well into the night. When we got back from our vacation, bedrock was colder than ever, and over the next few months it got worse and worse. Fred and I were barely speaking, but I did notice that even he had started wearing cabbage leaves on his feet. All of our appliances were long dead, and the scientists on TV said that it was starting to freeze everywhere, even Rocapulco. They offered all kinds of theories. Some said the sun was dying, while others argued the moon was angry. One guy said that the tortoise which carried the world had been slowly walking to a colder place a place where the sun had died and the moon was angry. <laughs> then he looked into the camera blankly and said that we were all done for. That guy was a regular Albert Einstein. <laughs> when it finally sank in that the cold was here to stay, I sat down with Betty to go over our options. The way I saw it, we only had one. Sun heating, I said. I heard people talk about it on pre-BC radio. Some guy was talking to Rox Murphy. He said you get rid of all the walls and roof of your house and trade them for glass that magnifies the rays of the sun. Compared to some of the other things some people were doing, like filling their walls with fireflies and cramming themselves into kangaroo pouches, it didn't seem that crazy. Betty was game so I brought the idea up with Fred to see if he would get his house done too so we could share the cost be partners just like with the swimming pool the diner the drive-in the boat as well as the fake gold mine but this Fred decided was just too far out Fred Flintstone has dignity he said he does not put himself and his family on full display in a house made of glass Fred Flintstone is not a ladybug in a jelly jar by day I would work on the house and by night I would worry about Fred as we lie in bed Betty assures me that this is just nature taking its course men like Fred are a dying breed Betty says while rubbing my back you're just more evolved than he is did you know that Wilma once told me that Fred still has a tiny little tail at the base of his spine (laughs) I bolt upright in bed That night I dream of trying to coax Fred out of a tree with a bag of peanuts. He grabs for them, but instead of putting them in his mouth, he throws them angrily at my face. I awake with great sadness. It's like there's something inside me that keeps telling me to be friends with Fred. When you decide to be friends with someone, you're friends, and that's all there is to it. Almost like you don't have any choice about it. I mean... If friends were easy to take and made you feel good about yourself, they wouldn't be called friends. They'd be called drugs. (laughs) Much to everyone's surprise, our glass house continues to keep us pretty warm. I know that well after a lot of bedrock has been frozen over, I'll still be getting by. I also know that when Fred comes pounding on my glass door in a panic his body dripping in icicles, I'll do what any best friend would do, and let him in before he cracks the glass. Boy, do we know how to bust Monte Carlo and to never be blue. It's a lot like friends, just keep saying, yabba-dabba-dabba-dabba-doo. If you think your sweetie's left for Tahiti, we can give you a clue. There's no need for crying, roar like a lion, yabba-dabba-dabba-dabba-doo. D-A-D-D-A means bad, D-A-B-B-A means good. Oh, what magic in the word we found by switching the letters around. So, if someday the bases are loaded and they're counting on you, you just can't strike out if you'll up a child. Yabba dabba dabba, yabba dabba dabba,
4: yabba
1: dabba dabba doo.
4: the rosemary by Heather O'Neill my grandfather bought this building in 1949 it's called the rosemary and grandfather says it used to be very fancy but you can't tell by looking at it now grandfather's gotten too old to make repairs and he's too stubborn to let other people do them not even my father who he considers butterfingered and shiftless so the place is crumbling down around us. The light in the lobby hasn't been working since before I was born. Lately, the gargoyles have begun falling off too. Grandfather says he'll probably be tried for murder when a tumbling winged gargoyle lands on someone's head. The rosemary is the only place I've ever lived in all my 14 and a half years. My mother was raised here in apartment 3A and when she got married, instead of moving away. She and my father just moved down the hall to apartment 3D. I've always felt like the whole building is my own house because I can walk over to my grandfather's apartment in my pajamas. Grandfather says it's better not to talk to the tenants, but I always do. A lot of them even keep their doors open and call out to me when I walk by and that's hard to ignore. Grandfather says they're an unlucky bunch, and bad luck is contagious. Why else would they be living here, he asks. The tenants in the rosemary keep dying. Horrible, unlucky deaths. Just a few months ago, one was trampled in a bar brawl, and another had a heart attack at the zoo. One was in a bus and fell out when the door accidentally opened. A fortune teller at Coney Island recently told Antoine in 7B that he would be killed by an explosion, so he never turns his lamps off because he's nervous about what unexpected things can happen when he turns them back on. I can only imagine what silly and sad death awaits me. Gary, the five-year-old in 7-H, and I are having a tea party in the courtyard. There's yesterday's rain in all the tea cups. Grandfather is standing outside the building with his head tilted to the side. He's trying to decide whether the building is crooked. When things roll in your apartment, do they roll to the left or to the right, he asks, and Gary answers for me. Sometimes to the left, he says and sometimes to the right. That's what I thought," grandfather says gravely. Old Man Ludovic in apartment 5A bought himself a wheelchair at the church rummage sale. He carries it down the stairs and sits on it on the sidewalk in front of the building. Ludovic says that when he was little he went to the circus and there was a bear dressed in a tuxedo jacket. Ludovic advises I buy a bear and train it. There will always be money in that, he says. Everybody wants to see a dancing bear. The tenants are always giving me advice. At first I kept a notebook so I could keep it all straight, but eventually I just gave up. Antoine and 3B says that if you kill a butterfly, you will go to hell. He also thinks that people who eat frogs will go to hell. He eats steak every night, though. The neighbors are always yelling at him because he throws his leftovers on the roof next door. He misses and it goes all over their windows. He thinks that he will go to heaven for feeding the birds. With that knowledge in mind, the rest of what he does during the day, to him, doesn't really matter. Ludovic's wife has a shelf of porcelain dolls. She kisses each one of them good night, just in case they are alive. But if they are alive, who is to say they would want an old lady kissing them, especially since she has no teeth and bad breath? Ludovic told me that he and his wife stopped kissing in 1987, and now there is no place for all of his wife's kisses to go. Jack, one of the new tenants in the basement, organizes a book sale in the courtyard. All the tenants bring down the books they don't want and put them on tables. The tables are full of children's books from the 60s that fall to pieces when you open the covers. The books describe how you can find an alternate reality by reaching far back into your utensil drawer. The rats in these books can all talk, and they all have respectable names, like Alfred. Jack gives me a plastic bag filled with paperbacks that don't sell. They say that you can get smarter just by being around books. I sit on the side of my bed holding them, smelling them. One of the books is a novel by Iceberg Slim that has been translated into French. I took this book out from the library in English last year when a teenager in 13A recommended it to me. I begin reading it again and find that I like it much better in French. In French, even the low life seem to be as gentle as children, with their socks pulled up to their knees. At the beginning of winter, the courtyard becomes littered with bicycles, as it is too cold to ride them anymore. In the summer, we will wish we had put them away instead of having left them outside to rust but now they are dead to us, like dinosaur bones. When dinosaurs first went extinct, there must have been bones everywhere. It must have been hard to walk anywhere without tripping on them. Grandfather says that Francis is an erotic. I believe this means he would not be a good person to share a paddle boat with. He'd probably yell at you the whole way, that you were paddling all wrong. It is better to stay on land, he would yell. On land, things are safe. You can buy soda in bulk, and you can keep your socks dry. Francis would give a start when the boat would hit the docks. I should have my head red for drinking coffee on a boat, he would say. Once a year, Ludovic and his wife take me to see Swan Lake. They say it's the only ballet that they can stay awake through. But just in case, we always show up carrying our couch cushions. When the weather turns nice, the pretty girl in apartment 4C sits outside her apartment selling a row of shoes that goes all the way across the courtyard. Her grandmother just died, she explains. I hold a pair of burgundy high heels with embroidered green flowers on them. Her grandmother lived 101 years and never had to resort to running shoes. Comfort is one of the swiftest killers in the modern age. Our neighbor's son Ford is 43, but he just moved out from his parents' place last year. He only moved down the hall, but he says it gives him a much-needed sense of independence. Still. He puts all his dirty dishes in a wagon and pulls them down the hall to his parents' apartment so he can use their dishwasher. He wears a long black overcoat, and while using his parents' bathroom, he fills his pockets with bottles of shampoo and bars of perfume soap. Before he leaves, he makes himself a pile of peanut butter sandwiches to take along with him for the road. He believes he can continue to live the rest of his life in this delightfully independent manner. The young people in the building have no idea whatsoever what's going on in the natural world. None of us have been away from the city for more than a few days. Just to stay in the swing of things, I subscribe to National Geographic to have proof that there are still animals in the world, that they are not just creatures that we have invented to jazz up our wallpaper and pajamas. I look up on the internet to see if albatrosses still exist or if they have gone extinct. A few of us have been arguing about this for days. I knock on everyone's door to give them the news. The albatross is alive, I cry. Tonight there is a dark cloud around the moon, as if it has fallen asleep with its mascara on and now has raccoon eyes. It is hot outside, and I sit by my open bedroom window, and I know Ludovic and his wife, Francis, Antoine, and grandfather are all doing the same. It is something that we all do, and to the people who pass by outside, we must look like a bunch of framed photos on a mantelpiece. For some of us, this is the closest we'll ever get to being a part of a large extended family.
0: From Wiretop today, you heard Heather O'Neill reading her short story, The Rose Marie. Heather is author of the novel, Lullabies for Little Criminals. You also heard Jonathan Goldstein reading live in Halifax at Ginger's Tavern as part of the Chutzpah Festival. Thanks to Shayla Howell, Stuart Young, and recording engineer Rod Sneddon. And special thanks to David Rakoff for supplying the voice of Fred Flintstone. And Wendy Door for playing Wilma Flintstone and Betty Rubble. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Mira Bergwintonic, Wendy Door, and Carolyn Warren. Tune into Wiretap Sunday at one for Pacific time. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Reach us through our website at cbc.ca/wiretap.